the word apostle implies the laying of a foundation or the establishing of something that was previously unfounded or non-existent. And thus the apostles that were ordained by Jesus Christ were ordained and sent to establish or to lay the foundation for the church. There was no church prior to the first coming of Jesus Christ. When he was on the earth, he spoke of the church as something that would exist yet future. He said to Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In his death and resurrection, he paid the price for the church's existence. And through the ministry of the apostles and the Holy Spirit working with them, he founded it or established the church, the testimony that we read about in the book of Acts. And thus throughout the years that the apostles were fulfilling their ministry, we call that the apostolic age of the church or the age or the segment of time wherein the church was established or her foundations were built and in order for the future of what she would be then built upon. But soon after, as the apostles began to die off, the, the apostolic age quickly folded or unfolded into what would be the post-apostolic age. And it went from a time of merely building the church to a time of building and now also defending the church. Because by the end of the apostolic era, errors had begun to manifest within, the, uh, within the, the body of what the church ultimately became. And so we come to the book of 1 John. It was written by, of course, the Apostle John. And at the time of the writing of the epistle, John was the last of the living apostles. He was most likely over 90 years of age at the time that this letter was written. And it was probably written even after the book of Revelation, which of course was also written by the Apostle John. It's amazing to consider this man who now at this point is so old, how long he had been on the earth and how long he had known Jesus. The apostle John was one of the first four of the apostles that Jesus had called. It was Peter and Andrew, James and John that were all called at the very beginning, all called at once. He was also one of the youngest at that time. Most scholars believe that John was probably still a teenager when Jesus first called him. So imagine the span of time that John walked with Jesus from the time that he was in his teens. And now he's over 90 years old. And the things that he had seen, the things that he had experienced, the things that he had done. He was one of the closest apostles to Jesus while he walked in his earthly ministry. Peter, James, and John are really the ones that were in the inner circle with Jesus during that time. They were with him at the special times when he raised the young girl from the dead or when he went on to the Mount of Transfiguration or when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was always Peter, James, and John that were there. And so Jesus had a special ministry and a special place for John. John refers to himself as the apostle whom Jesus loved. As you read the Gospel of John, he had a grasp for Jesus' love for him more than probably any person that has ever lived. So much so that when he addressed himself, that was his very identity. I am, who am I? I am the one that Jesus loved. And his reputation became the apostle of love. That was John's nickname or how he was known, the apostle of love, because of the love that Jesus had for him, the love that he had for others, and the love that he communicates and expresses through his writings, both in the Gospel of John and also in 1 John. Now, even that in and of itself represents a great change that had taken place in the heart of John through his relationship with Christ. If you remember, while John was walking with Jesus, there was an occasion where the apostles encountered a group of men that were kind of walking with Jesus from a distance or doing things in his name, but not part of their company. And there was also another time when there was a group of other Samaritans that were preaching Christ, but weren't part of their company. And John said to Jesus, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven like Elijah did and smoke them? 
And Jesus called James and John Boangeries, or the sons of thunder, because of their short-temperedness and their zeal and their quickness to bring judgment and wrath down upon people. And Jesus said, you know now what spirit you're of. That's not the reason that I came. He that's not against us is for us. You need to chill out. But there was a great work of the Holy Spirit that affected John to where he was changed from that base nature of being heavy over people to being a lover of people. It's the work that God does in his life. Another interesting and an amazing fact about the Apostle John is that of the 12 apostles, he was the only one that was present at the cross of Jesus Christ. Perhaps that's part of the reason why he was so aware of Jesus' love for him personally and why he could address himself as the apostle whom Jesus loved. Because he knew what the cross was and what it was for Jesus to go to it more so than any of the other apostles who weren't there to see it firsthand, but John was. And so we have this man now writing to the church late in his life. And the intention of this letter that was written by John now well into his 90s is to both defend and define truth as it relates to the Christian life. As I said a little bit earlier, by this time, the apostolic age had folded into a time when now errors had crept into the church, and wherein at once it was just building the church, evangelism and salvation and thousands of people coming in. Now there has been an infiltration by Satan, so to speak. He's brought in false teachings, false apostles, false Christians that have begun to sow false doctrines or untruths amongst the church in order to pollute it and in order to subvert it in its purpose. And so at the end of John's life now, he writes to address some of these errors and also to establish the Christians in what is the absolute truth. What were the errors that were sown into the early church? There's some of the same errors that exist in church and in churches today. The first one is legalism. That is bringing Christians back under the burden and the weight of the law. Bringing people into a place where they have a legal relationship with God. A relationship with God that's based on performance and how well I'm doing and how well I'm keeping up with the commands. And the, the, the strength of my relationship with him is correlated with how well I'm doing in keeping those commands. It's legalism. What it breeds is distance from God because I can never be good enough and I can never be doing enough. And it also breeds hypocrisy and isolationism. Because I must put on the front that I'm doing better than I am. And I can't let you know what's really going on in my life. Because if you saw what I really am versus what I'm supposed to be, then that would make me vulnerable and it would break down our fellowship. And so legalism was detrimental to the church. It was a problem then. It's a problem now. Another problem was liberalism. Liberalism is removing all barriers and restrictions whatsoever and taking the path that Jesus said was narrow and broadening it and making it inclusive to things that are an abomination to God. Liberalism in the Christian context, in a sense, is saying that all things are okay. All things are lawful. I can do whatever I want. I'm saved by grace. And because Jesus loves me and died for me, he accepts me no matter what I do. And so all behaviors are okay because of the cross. It justifies me in sin revealed by God. And that also is an error that's wrong. We're not called to legalism, and yes, our sins have been forgiven, but we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to live a holy life. And so we're to call upon that power and employ what he gives in order to be free from sin, not give ourselves back to the bondage of it. And so liberalism destroys Christianity, it, it destroys the reputation of God, and it destroys our freedom in Christ that he's called us into. We're free not to sin, not that we're free to sin. He gives us power over it. And so liberalism was a big problem in those days. Another problem in the early church was pluralism or syncretism, that is, taking facets or aspects of other religions, other beliefs, other systems, 
and incorporating them or assimilating them into Christianity or Christian values and then calling it Christian or putting God's name, Jehovah, on something that he did not ordain or sanction and, and kind of making this blending pot or, or salad of beliefs and ideals, our own religion, God made in our own image and then calling it Christian. It was a problem in those days and it's a problem now. And then finally, the last of the four big ones in those days was Gnosticism. And the Gnostics believed that everything God and everything Christ was just purely spiritual and that there was no physical relationship between uh, the, the spirit world and our world. In other words, the Bible is an ideal and everything that Jesus said is true, but everything that I do in the flesh is irrelevant to my spiritual life because the two things never touch each other. So in my flesh, I can do whatever I want, and that doesn't affect my spiritual standing before God because the two things don't touch each other. They also believed, the Gnostics did, that because of that, Jesus was God, but that he didn't actually come in the flesh, that he came as an apparition of a spirit. When he walked, he didn't leave footprints. That he was here, but he wasn't really here in the flesh. And Gnosticism was a problem. It had infiltrated the churches and permeated the beliefs of some professed Christians during those days. And so John, in his own way, writes to the church. And his intention is twofold. One, to clearly define what is truth. And at the same time, to refute those things that absolutely are error. And we'll see as we go in no particular ordered way. I mean, he really writes like a teenage essay in a sense that everything is kind of like, you know, spoken um, very successively with not, not a crazy amount of order, you know. But John addresses each of these things as we move through these verses. Now, the highest intent of John if you were to ask him, John, why did you write 1 John? What was your purpose in writing? The answer would be to describe to humanity what it means to be in Christian fellowship or what is Christian fellowship or what does it mean to be a Christian? He wants to make clear, distinct trail markers for us on this thing called Christianity so that we understand exactly what it is. Now, in the pages of doing that, describing what Christianity is, John tells us of four other reasons why he wrote that will be results of those or in the lives of those that walk the Christian life. He tells us in 1 John 1, 4, that he's writing these things so that our joy would be full. When we're walking the walk and living the life that God has called us to live, one of the results of that is that there's going to be a fullness of joy within our hearts. And so John says, the reason I want you to know what it really means to be a Christian is because it will have a direct effect on your level of joy within your life. Another reason John tells us why he writes in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I write these things unto you that you sin not. In other words, that there would be a strengthening in us of the inner man in our fight, in our resistance, in our obtaining victory over sin in our lives. Now, any true child of God or person that really walks with God wants to be free from sin. I know that because I'm a child of God. And from the very earliest moments of my Christian life, there was a longing in me to be free and rid of the sins that had plagued me and that did plague me in, in those days and, and even throughout. If you're a Christian, you automatically should hate sin. You just want it away from you. The proverb says that the fear of the Lord is to hate evil in every wicked way. And so as we come into an understanding of what it really means to be a Christian, Accompanied with that is a hatred for sin. And when there's a hatred for sin, man, you have all the ingredients for victory over sin. Often the only thing that's needed left in a person's life to have victory over sin is a hatred for it. Our biggest issue is not that we can't get victory. It's that we don't want victory oftentimes. He's made the way for us to have it. He's supplied the power over it. 
And when we truly want it, he's ready to give it, and he does. And so John says, I write these things that you sin not. Another reason he says that he writes in chapter 2, verse 26, he says, I write these things concerning them that seduce you or them that deceive you. And so another reason why John writes this letter is that we might be protected against spiritual deception. As John lays out for us, as he does, the black and white of this is of God and this is not, it brings us to a place where we can discern when someone is trying to deceive us or when we're hearing something that is deceptive or not right. We can compare it with what John says and we can realize that's not true. That, that goes against what the Bible says, what the Bible reveals. And so John says, part of my intent in laying down the definition for you is that you would not be deceived. And then finally, in chapter 5, verse 13, John says, I write these things unto you that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. And so John says that under this banner of defining what it means to be a Christian, he says that another outcome of that, a reason for his writing, is that you and I might have assurance in our hearts that we belong to God, that we have eternal life. Not that we will have it someday, but that we already are citizens of heaven and that we've already been given the gift of eternal life. And so John's intention is that we would know what Christianity truly is and also what it's not. And as a result of that, that we would have fullness of joy, that we would be free from sin, that we wouldn't be deceived, and that we would have assurance in our hearts that we're going to heaven and that we've been given eternal life from the Father through the Son. So that's the intent and the purpose behind John's writing. Now that should get us a little bit excited, and here's why. Because in Isaiah chapter 55, God says that his word will not return void. That is, God says that his word goes forth and it will accomplish what he sent it forth to accomplish. That his word is living and powerful and it produces what he intends. When God said, let there be light, what happened? There was light. When Jesus said, stretch forth your hand, what happened? There was power to stretch forth the hand. When Jesus said, wind, be still, and waves, settle down, what happened? There's power in the word of God. And so in that God has told us why he has sent these words, the power for these things to be realized and borne out in our lives is provided in the word itself. And so as we study the words of 1 John these things are supernaturally going to be imparted as we're able to comprehend, apprehend, and believe the things that are spoken and the things that are written. And so John's intention is to define the Christian fellowship, what it is, to give us truth and to, um, to help us to understand. And so we begin 1 John chapter 1 with John's declaration of purpose, probably the most beautiful run-on sentence that has ever been put on paper. In chapter 1, verse 1, John says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. So John gives to us, the declaration of his intention and why he's writing this letter. Now, at the very beginning of first, uh, verse 1, he uses the word that in the King James. And if you're one that writes in your Bible uh, or aren't opposed to such and you have a pen handy, you can circle or underline the word that that's used in verse 1. 
And then you can also um, take the word, uh, oh goodness, where is it? I don't want to give you the wrong place. Oh, it, it's also in verse 1, the words word of life at the end of the verse, and you can circle or underline that. And then you can, in verse 2, underline the word eternal life, or circle that. And then in verse 3, you can take the word Jesus Christ, and you can circle or underline that. And somewhere nearby in the margin, you can just make a note that all of those are synonymous in John's mind as he is writing to us here. The that, which he is speaking about in verse 1, the word of life that he mentions at the end of the verse, the eternal life he mentions in verse 2, and Jesus Christ that he mentions in verse 3 are all one in the same. And that's the theme of what he's speaking about here in his introduction. And so when he says that which was from the beginning, he's talking about Jesus Christ, his eternal life, and the eternal life that he provided through his earthly ministry. And he says that that was from the beginning. Now, when he says that that was from the beginning, he's not saying that it was created in the beginning. He's saying that it existed in the beginning. In other words, though, it wasn't until about 4,000 years into the history of the world that Jesus was born of a virgin in Bethlehem. Yet he pre-existed all of that, and he eternally pre-existed before that with the Father in glory. The Father and the Son were existent and unified in heaven for all of eternity past. And John brings it to the forefront here, and he says, that which was from the beginning, but it didn't stay in that place, in heaven separated from the world. But rather, he says, which we have heard. In other words, he was eternally existent, but then he was physically manifested. And so he says, we have heard him and we have seen him with our eyes and we have looked upon him and our hands have handled him who is the word of life. John is testifying concerning his own personal relationship with the eternally existent, physically manifested son of God, Jesus Christ. And he says, first of all, that we have heard him. And John could testify that firsthand. John was there in the physical presence of Jesus. And he heard the things that Jesus declared in the testimonies and the teachings and the claims. And the words of power that came out of his mouth. Those things were physically heard by the ears of John and then recorded in his gospel as a testimony. But it goes deeper than simply the physical faculty of hearing through the ear. But there's a hearing that goes deeper. There's a spiritual hearing that's in the heart. Every one of us that's here tonight that knows Jesus Christ personally knows what it means to hear something beyond just the hearing of the physical ear. There's a call to us from another land. Oftentimes it comes in dead silence physically. It's when we're sitting in a quiet moment and there's a tugging or a knocking on our heart. Or sometimes it happens when we're sitting in a service or we're listening to a message on the radio or we're sitting across the table with someone who is seeking to reason with us out of the scriptures. And in a moment that we don't expect, there's something that resonates in a place inside our heart that we didn't even know existed. And there's a hearing there. And there's a voice reasoning with us that's saying that there's something more than what we can just see with our eyes and hear with our ears and touch with our physical frame or fingertips. That there's a world and a kingdom or something that exists beyond in a realm that, that, that is invisible to the human eye or to the naked eye. And there's something that we hear that goes beyond that. And John is testifying and saying, that which we have heard that resonates in our very soul. Not only have we heard it, but he said also what we have seen with our eyes. We physically laid eyes upon the eternally existent, physically manifested Son of God. We saw him as he walked upon the water and then slept in the boat in his humanity. We saw him as he cleansed the leper, as he would touch the blind eyes and they would be made whole. 
We saw him overturn the tables in the temple in the zeal for his father's house. We saw him suffer and die and sweat as it were great drops of blood in the garden of Gethsemane. We saw the tears flow as he cried out over Jerusalem and said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how many times would I have gathered you as a mother hen gathers her chicks to herself, but you would not. And we heard, we saw these things with our eyes. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were there on the Mount of Transfiguration when he was pierced through with unapproachable light. And we saw the glory of what was on the inside manifested on the outside. We were eyewitnesses of these things. But he says, not only did we see it with our physical eyes that we can bear witness of it, but he says, as he goes on, that we have looked upon it. And the idea there is not simply that we glanced at it with our physical eyes anymore, but now he's saying that we have examined it, that we saw him in such a way and we have proved out everything that he said in our lives. We've tested his teachings. We've heard his claims. We've weighed it in the balances. We've seen it from every angle. And we have come to the conclusion that he absolutely was who in fact he claimed to be and who in fact he was manifested to be. And then not only that, our hands have handled of the word of life. John, able to say firsthand that he leaned upon the breast of Jesus as they sat there at the Last Supper. John saying, for those that would say that Jesus did not come in the flesh or that he was just a spiritual apparition, no, not so. But we have handled him. It is in fact true that God came into the world in human flesh. He walked among us. He washed our feet. And he says, for the life, verse 2, was manifested. And we have seen it, and now we bear witness and show unto you. We take the things that we experience, that we've seen and heard, and we show it unto you, and that is eternal life, age-abiding life that was manifested among us, which was with the Father and was given to us. And now his intention, verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you that, here's the reason, you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So John says, my intention and my purpose is that you might know what is this fellowship that we are a part of and that you might be invited and brought into this living fellowship. The word fellowship in the Greek is an interesting Greek word. It's the word koinonia. And there's no singular English word that can capture koinonia in its full meaning and and, and what it what it's defined as. In the English language, koinonia is translated fellowship. It's also translated communion. It's also translated one. And it's also translated common, that they had all things in common. And if you take those four words and put them together, you get somewhat of an idea of what this word koinonia or what this word fellowship means. It means communion or the taking of two things and making them one unified thing so that there's no longer two but one. To take the word common means that it means all of the resources and all of the ideals and every facet that makes up the existence of those two things are blended together and they become one. They have all things common. Not just internally, but also the physical possessions or aspects of those two things. All things become one. There's a unity, and there's no division or schism. There's no line of separation between the two things, but all things are enveloped in this one. And if you think about the weight of what John is saying here, he's saying our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. Now think about that for just a minute. The reason why the eternally existent God was physically manifested in the person of Christ and why he went to the cross is so that you and I might be made one with God. That we might be brought into a relationship with God wherein there's no longer two entities, him and us, but where the two things ultimately become one. 
It's an amazing thing to consider. But when God created Adam in the garden, the Bible says that God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created man. And he did it on the sixth day of creation. And when God finished the creation, God finished creating. There was no more creating after the sixth day. He was done. But after everything that God had made and after declaring that everything he made was good, God looked at Adam alone and he said, it is not good for man to be alone. And so God made Adam aware of his loneliness by bringing every animal before Adam for him to give them names. Mr. and Mrs. Orangutan, Mr. and Mrs. Elephant, Mr. and Mrs. Giraffe, Mr. and Mrs. Fly, you know. And he would go through and he'd see that every, every creation of God had a counterpart, but he recognized and realized that there was no counterpart for himself, that he was alone. And Adam was made aware of his loneliness. And so what God did, God who made man in his image, is that he put a deep sleep on Adam. He opened up his side and he removed the woman from the man. He did not create the woman. Creation was complete. The woman was created on what day? Day six. The same day that the man was created. She was in Adam. But on day, whatever day it was, God opened the side of Adam. He pulled the woman out, closed up the flesh of Adam. And with that rib, he made the woman. And then he put them together. Listen, Genesis 5, 1 and 2 says that he put them together and he called their name, singular, Adam. The two became one and he called their name man. That's what Adam means. In other words, man made in the image of God is the union or the fellowship of the male and the female together in one in marriage. That's the expression of the person of God in its fullness. The two parts put together as one. Now, why did God do that? You say that is a twisted invention of God. He's extremely creative, but why did he do that? Here's why. Because it's a paradigm and a model of why God made man in the first place. Man was made in the image of God, right? God wanted a counterpart. And so here's what God did. God came into the world. His side was opened up on the cross as he was pierced. Blood and water spilled out. From that place of his death, the bride was birthed. And at spiritual regeneration, when a person is born again, a part of God is given to us. The Holy Spirit is implanted in us. And we are now children of the living God. We're children of light. And the day will come when the marriage will be completed at the marriage supper of the Lamb and the two will become one. It's an amazing thing to realize what God has made man to be. What we are as the bride of Christ. And John invites us into this glorious relationship. He says, truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. Those things are to be unified as one. What an amazing thing to realize that God has made a way, not one of many ways, but a way that you and I can be in a relationship with himself. It is the, the heart cry of every part of God's creation from the very beginning is to be in a relationship with the true and living God. And God has made a way for you and I to be in it. Now, when we're in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, we are also then brought into a relationship with one another. Truly, we have fellowship one with another, and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And so in that we're brought into this relationship with God, this koinonia, this unity with him, there's also a unity that exists among us now as we are in this fellowship with one another. And John says that the reason why we should listen to him in verse 4 is because it results in a fullness of joy. These things are written that your joy might be full. So here's the summation of John's intent in writing this letter. It's to bring us into the fellowship of the body of Christ 
whose privilege it is to have eternal life in a relationship with the Father and the Son. And he's pleading with us to hear his testimony in that it's based on a thorough examination and trial of the facts involved and that it's worthy of its claim because it produces what it promises and that it results in a full and lasting joy. And so John lays out his declaration, his intention behind writing this thing, saying, I want you to understand what it means to be a Christian because of the glorious implications of what that name carries. So you say, well, then what does it mean to be a Christian? What's your message for us, John? I'm glad you asked. Verse 5, he says, this then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you. And so now John begins his message and he gets right to the facts. The very first aspect of what it means to be a Christian, he says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Now, amazingly, this is something that is not unfamiliar to us. In fact, most religions of the world use this same analogy of light and darkness as an illustration or a way to personify their God in a way that we might understand by calling it light or coming to the light or being enlightened or some other way that that word is used and employed. But amazingly, this is the only time in the Bible that God is actually called light, where it actually definitively makes the declaration that God is light, though that illustration is used concerning the things of God all throughout the Bible. But it's a fitting illustration nevertheless. Now, what's the symbolism or the significance of light as it relates to the person of God? or as it relates to spiritual things in general. Three things. Number one, physical. We understand light and darkness. But in a second way, it's intellectual. There's an intellectual aspect of light in that when we are, are, are uh, made aware of something, we're enlightened to what that is. It's an intellectual definition of things. And then there's also a moral faculty or a moral definition of light versus darkness in the Bible. Now, concerning the physical nature of light and the fact that it says that God is light, well, the Bible actually makes that really clear. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, Paul speaks of God the Father as dwelling in unapproachable light or light that no man can come near. We see in the Old Testament that when Moses asked that the glory of God pass before him, just the very tail end of God's glory passed by and that was so bright that Moses' face was shining when he came off the mountain. God is light. At the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus was glorified in their presence, they said that the light was so bright that they couldn't look at it, that it was like the noonday sun. When Jesus appeared to Paul the Apostle in Acts chapter 9, it blinded him because of the light that came from him. Hebrews chapter 3 or chapter 1 verse 3 talks about the effulgence or the light that emanates from the person of God. In physical form, he is likened unto light, that God is light. But in an intellectual context, God is also light. In Proverbs chapter 6, 23, it says that the commandment is a lamp and the law is a light. That is, that as we look into the Word of God and we understand the things that He teaches us in the Word of God, it becomes a light for our path. We become intellectually enlightened by the Word of God. Psalm chapter 119, verse 105, He says, Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And so His Word opens my eyes, it enlightens my way, and it gives me understanding. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, it says that the word of God is like a light that shines in a dark place. And the idea is, is that as we understand intellectually and spiritually the word of God, it gives us understanding as to our world, our lives, our surrounding, the context of truth and error. And so God is light in an intellectual sense. 
but it also carries with it a moral implication. And I believe that's the highest context of what John is getting at right here. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Isaiah writes, and he says, Woe unto those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. And the idea is that light is righteousness and darkness is evil or wickedness. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, the Apostle Paul says it this way. He says, For this you know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things comes the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not therefore partakers with them, for you were sometimes darkness." That is, that you used to live in darkness according to these things, but now are ye light in the Lord, walk as children of light. It's a moral definition of what it means to be light. Romans chapter 13, verse 11, Paul again writes, and he says, And that knowing the time, that it is now high time to awake out of sleep, For now is our salvation nearer than when we believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness. That's a moral connotation. And let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. And so light in the moral context is righteousness in contrast to what is evil. And so the Bible defines God as light, and he fits the definition on all three fronts. He is physical light that no man can approach unto. He is intellectual light in that his word is perfect. And he is moral light in that he lays down what is right and what is excellent. God is light. And John says not only is he light, but that in him there is no darkness at all. Meaning that not only is God light, but God is the epitome of absolute perfection in that light. Everything that he sees, knows, and does is absolutely perfect. Now, why does John tell us that? He says in verse 6, In light of the fact that God is light, if we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in darkness that is, moral darkness, or in contrast to what God says is light, then we are lying and we do not the truth, or we do not practice the truth. Now, when he says walk, he's talking about our lifestyle. He's talking about the way that we live. And what he's saying to us here is that if God is light, and that in him is no darkness at all, then if we are in him then it stands to reason that we would be walking in the light of who he is. Meaning that physically, we're going to walk with God. We're going to walk and live in an awareness of his presence in our lives. We're not going to be in and out. Well, I'm with the Lord and walking with him on Sundays or Wednesdays or when I read my Bible in the morning. But the rest of the day is mine, and then I walk how I want, and God is somewhere else. He's not a part of my life during that time. No, 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 that's not walking in the light. That's visiting the light. In an intellectual sense, to walk in the light means that I take what God says in his word, the revealed truth of what he's recorded, the commandment, the law, which is a lamp and a light, the word that shines like a light in a dark place, and I bring my allegiance into the word of God. And I say, well, if God says this is the way, then this is the way. If God says this is right, then this is right. If God says this is wrong, then this is wrong. And so for me to walk in the light is for me to bring myself under the word of God's authority and to ascribe to its truth as the ideal for my life. 
And then to walk in the light morally means that I'm walking in obedience to what God says is right and what God says is light. If I walk in the light, he says in verse 7, as he is in the light, Jesus being the standard, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So what he's saying is that if I'm truly a believer and if there's any weight at all behind my profession or what I say that I am as a Christian, then my lifestyle and what I practice is not going to be darkness and it's not going to contain darkness, but I'm going to walk in the light. And the result of me walking in the light is that I'm going to have fellowship with other people in the body of Christ. There's going to be a freedom from hypocrisy and from legalism because there's a vulnerability and a truth that's taking place within me. And more glorious truth than that, he says that if I walk in the light, notice, he says, then the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. It's a continual cleansing that John is talking about right here. He's going to tell us in a minute that we don't attain sinless perfection. He's going to give us the other side of this sinless call in verse, nine, or verse 8 and 9. But what he tells us here is that if we walk in the light and that our desire is to walk with him in light, then the blood of his son is going to be continually cleansing us from sin. That is this. As God reveals it and brings it to the surface, I'm not going to hide from him or from it, but I'm going to let him see it, judge it, call it what it is, and then I'm going to deal with it and let him get it out of my life. And the blood of Jesus will cleanse me from sin. This is different than forgiveness. Forgiveness we're going to get to when we get to verse 9, but this is cleansing. The word cleanse in the Greek is the word catheterize. Anybody in here ever had the glorious privilege of having a catheter or being catheterized? <laughs> a catheter or to be catheterized, it means to remove waste. And what the promise here is given is that if I walk in the light and I'm willing to bring myself into his light and walk there, then he's going to be continually removing waste from my life. It doesn't happen all at once. Notice what he says in verse 8. He says, if we say that we have no sin, that is, if I make the claim, well, yeah, I've, I'm sinless. I've obtained a sinless perfection. And, you know, if maybe one day you could get to where I am, way up here on this platform and stool, you know, then you would know what it really means to have fullness of joy, you know. If I ever come across that way or make that connotation as though there's sinless perfection in my life, then what you need to look at me and do is just say, liar. <laughs> because John lays it out, black and white, that if we say that we have no sin, then we lie. <laughs> and we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. There are churches and whole denominations that believe in the obtaining of sinless perfection that it's possible to be sinlessly perfect on this side of eternity. The Bible knows no such thing. Paul would say at the end of his life that he was the chief of sinners. If the Apostle Paul was the chief of sinners at the end of his life, then I don't think that leaves much room of hope for you and me of ever obtaining sinless perfection. The closer we get to light, the more flaws are revealed. How many of you have recognized that on Monday morning when you look in the mirror and turn on the lights in your bathroom, you know? Light exposes flaws. And so to get close to the light and to think in some way that I'm perfect or that I've obtained is to be completely self-deceived. He removes sin as we continue to get closer to him and repent of it. Notice how it's done in verse 9. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we walk in the light... The light exposes our flaws. And what we're called to do once we see our flaws is we're called to simply confess them before God. The word is homologeo. It means to speak the same word or to say the same thing. It means that I say the same thing about my sin that God says about my sin. I'm agreeing with him concerning the condition that's existent within me. That requires humility, doesn't it? For me to confess before a holy God that there's a flaw within my life. 
But the Bible declares here that when I confess my sin to him, that he is first of all faithful. That means that he never falls short of his promise. That every single time I confess my sin to him, he is faithful to do with it what he says he's going to do with it. What's he going to do? He's going to forgive it and cleanse it. He's going to, first of all, take away the guilt and stain. And second of all, he's going to break its power. Even if it's little by little by little, chink in the armor, chink in the armor, chink in the armor. Confession brings forgiveness and cleansing. But it also says that he is just. Not just faithful, but just. What does that mean? It means that he is completely righteous and fair in his ability to do that. How can God, a holy God, just forgive sin? Oh, I just killed my wife. Lord, I'm sorry. I'm genuinely sorry. I, I, I did that. I, I need your forgiveness. I need your cleansing. I'm guilty of murder. I'll go to hell. The Bible says that he's faithful to forgive me if I confess that. But how can he be just to forgive that and just look over it? Here's how. Because God paid for that sin by inflicting the wrath that that sin deserved on his very son on the cross of Calvary. The sin of every man, woman, and child that was ever committed was placed upon the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And thus, when the repentant sinner comes to God in contrition and repentance, God can justly, fairly forgive that person because the debt of that sin has been paid. It's been absorbed on another person, on the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from, notice this, all unrighteousness. Back in verse 7 at the end, it says that the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Do you know here tonight that there is no sin that God cannot and will not forgive? The only unpardonable sin is the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ until the day that you die. That's what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, to ignore and to mock and to cast off his pleading with you to come to him and to receive his gift of salvation. But short of refusing Christ, every sin, all manner of sin and blasphemy will be forgiven unto men. He says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. His word exposes the flaw of our sin. And so John begins by calling us into a walk in the light. The musicians can come as we conclude our study tonight in chapter 1. He tells us that if we walk in the light, that we're going to walk in the presence of God's person, in the presence of God's Holy Spirit. He says that if we walk in the light, we're going to ascribe to the truth of God's word and we're going to make it our own. And if we walk in the light, then there's going to be a continual pursuit of righteousness in our lives with a recognition, a confession, and a cleansing of our sin. And all of that is possible through the person, work, and cross of Jesus Christ that's been given on our behalf for our sins. What an amazing God we serve. Father, we thank you tonight for this fellowship that we've been called into. We love it, Lord. We love being called your sons and daughters. It's beyond what we could ever ask, think, or imagine. And so tonight, Lord, as we sit here and we take in this truth, we recognize the love that motivated you to purchase this price for us. Oh, Lord, if there's anything in our hearts or in our lives tonight that you would remove, that you would see there that's foul, that doesn't belong. Oh, God, if there's darkness in us, if we've been self-deceived by believing that we can do certain things that you have condemned or that we can leave out certain things that you've asked for, oh, God, I pray tonight that you would call us into more perfect light. So help us, Lord. We thank you so much for your grace, and we give our lives to you tonight afresh. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.